Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, says. Smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. Hey, hey, everyone. Hope you're all having a wonderful beginning of your week. Today, uh, we wrapped up my first book giveaway on Instagram at Josh Korak with a copy of The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Now, van der Kolk is one of the leading experts in the field of trauma, and and honestly, his book is just a must-have on anybody's personal library because trauma is a universal experience, right? Our winner for the giveaway was Brooke Bailey uh, this time around. So congrats, Brooke. I'll be sending you your copy soon. Follow me on Instagram to keep an eye out for more possible giveaways in the future. But guys, that's enough of that. Today, we have a very special guest. One that I've been hyping up all season long. I was... Definitely not expecting to get her on the show, so I'm very fortunate that she was able to spare some time and talk about some some mental health with me. Today, we are joined by the wonderfully brilliant Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas sees issues of suicide prevention and mental health promotion from a host of perspectives. Clinical psychologist, mental health advocate, faculty member, researcher, and suicide loss survivor. She has earned an international reputation as an entrepreneur and innovator in social change. Along the way, she's helped establish many large-scale gap-filling mental health efforts, including man therapy, which can be found at www.mantherapy.org, and National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. She has held leadership roles with the International Association of Suicide Prevention the American Association of Suicidology, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, United Suicide Survivors International, and, as if that wasn't enough, the Carson J. Spencer Foundation. In 2016, she was invited to speak at the White House on men's mental health. She has had multiple major research publications, has led TED Talks, and has her very own podcast that you can find uh, called Hope Illuminated. She has won multiple awards for her advocacy, including the 2015 Farborough Award from the International Association of Suicide Prevention, the 2014 Survivor of the Year from the American Association of Suicidology, the 2014 Invisible Disabilities Association Impact Honors Award, and the 2012 Alumni Master Scholar from the University of Denver. She received her undergraduate degree in psychology and studio art, her master's in nonprofit management from Regis University, and her doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Denver. In this episode, Dr. Spencer Thomas and I get to talk about consulting with construction companies, about men's mental health, man therapy, using humor as a coping tool, and of course, suicide loss and prevention. You can check out her website at sallyspencerthomas.com for different resources and more information. 
There's honestly so much more to say about her, but I'm just going to go ahead and let her do the rest. So let's not waste any more time and get into it. This is Care with Korak with Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. Josh, I am so sorry. I got really confused with my calendar today because I have a conference presentation later and I thought there was just a misscheduling thing because all it says is Sally Spencer Thomas link. And I thought that's how it usually comes through for the conferences. My bad. Completely. No, don't be sorry. Don't I'm be here. Sorry. You're here. That's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm good. It's Friday and also payday and also going to a comedy show tonight that I'm very excited about. So oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. We're a comedy show. It's in Boulder. It's Kyle Kinane. I don't know if you know him, but we're going to go see Kyle Kinane tonight. And then tomorrow we've got this cool art installation thing called Meow Wolf. And yeah. then we'll see Jim Gaffigan tomorrow night. Like this oh, wow, is yeah. a good weekend. Yeah, you have a jam-packed weekend. I know. I know. Great. Yeah. Mm. Well, hey, thanks so much for um taking time to speak with me today. I'm glad we could get together finally. And yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I'm just super honored that you took the time to speak to me today. I think I told you, but um, you know, I just, I was uh, one of the attendees, I guess, of the Suicide Prevention Summit a few weeks ago, a month ago now, I guess. Um, and I was just really enthralled with your, your presentation. And Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just glad we could get you on and talk a little bit about mental health today. Yeah, let's do it. Well, cool. Yeah. I mean, the way I always just kind of like to start these things is just having you guys give a little introduction, a little bit of your background, experience, and and where you're at now today, professionally, personally, whatever you want to share. And I'm just kind of sharing what you do. Okay. So we're starting. Yeah. Let's get into it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, so yeah, I'm Sally Spencer Thomas. I'm a psychologist by training and I lost my brother to suicide in 2004 and, you know, a lot of people have these events in their life that kind of define their life before and then their life after. And losing him was a, a huge turning point in my life. Uh, we were very close. He was my only sibling. He was a 34-year-old business executive when he died, father of two. And the six months leading up to his death or so um, were uh, just havoc. Um, my brother fought bipolar condition for much of his adult life, but did so successfully from age 19 on. And for whatever reason, that summer of 2004, um, just took it to a whole nother level and just destroyed him. Mm. So uh, as you can imagine, with any kind of sudden death like that, it's very traumatic um, for the family and friends. And sure. in the aftermath, we, we kind of pulled together to figure out what we needed to do to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. Yeah. Wow. I mean, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I know you, that's, that's been a big part of just your story and, and then how you go about doing these things, right. That you share this pretty often and yet it's still very personal. And uh, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. There's, there's parts of it that, um, that still get me every time I tell it, you know, uh, and it's been, probably thousands of times at this point, because it's been many years later. Um, but I think it's important for us to share our stories, the, mm. all the people impacted by suicide or suicidal behavior in one form or another. Um, because 
you know, historically we, we kept them quiet and then people don't know the impact. They don't know the suffering. They don't know the resilience, you know, it's just uh, a mystery, you know, so our stories matter. Oh, hundred percent. Right. Um, and so were you already training to be a psychologist before this happened or was this kind of as a, as a follow-up as, as part of the aftermath? Yeah. Everybody assumes that's the reason I got into this work. I'd actually been a psychologist or in the field of mental health in one form or another about 16 years at that point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I came out to Colorado. Uh, I was a psychology major in undergrad. And then I came out to Colorado in 1990 to go to graduate school at the university of Denver. And I loved my program. Like it was a great training program, but what was true there as was true in many programs during that time. And pretty much up until just recently is that interestingly enough, suicide was not a major focus of our training. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you know, many mental health professionals that I would say are probably 40 years old or older. If we got, if we got training at all in our graduate programs, it was all around fear it was all about don't get sued and document this correctly and you're going to lose your license. And they just like, ah, you know, they just scared us so badly about it. And I knew, I knew even before Carson's death that I was underprepared in that area. So the, the first conference that I ever went to was a suicide conference. The first research project that I ever was involved in was around police officers response to civilian suicide. I did an, I did an above and beyond externship on my internship. So I would get more experience in emergency room, um, um, helping uh, people fighting intense suicide uh, thoughts and feelings. And um, I still felt incredibly underprepared. Um, the many, most mental health professionals are, you know, if they get beyond just the, here's how to document and you're going to get sued and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the, the major obsession is risk prediction. So we're given all of these um tools, all these forms and questionnaires and uh, assessment things and for us to help predict risk. And it turns out like it's almost impossible. Like it's not, we're terrible at it. Even with the the best tools out there, it's like flipping a coin. So we can never get past that because we're so obsessed with predicting imminent risk that we forget that we're actually there to help people. So anyway, that's all to say that um, while I did know some things and I did try really hard to get prepared, not even necessarily for my brother, but just in my clinical practice, um, mm-hmm. I know things today, a ton more things today that were never even really discussed during my training. Sure. Um, but by the time he died, I'd actually worked out of doing counseling. Um, so I realized early on in my career uh, that I wasn't meant to be a therapist. I was like, oh, shoot, $70,000 in graduate school debt. Dang. Um, but I, I loved learning about it. And I really love people's stories. And I love helping people. But I'm way too impatient and um, to be sitting in a room all day. Sure. Um, and then I also realized, like, I'm probably much more impactful working at a systems level or a cultural level than I am helping people one-on-one. And that's kind of where I'm better suited. So, you know, it took a a decade or so to figure that out as life changes do. But then once I realized like I'm more of an impact entrepreneur than I am a therapist, then I was good. First, I felt like a loser. I'm like, why am I more empathic? Why don't I have better intuition? Like I'm the worst counselor ever. And then I'm like, okay, no, no, no. Just take those same skills and then point them this way. And then then you're going to be doing the thing you need to be doing. So 
Yeah. Well, and that's just one of the beautiful things about psychology and mental health and the field that it is, is there's so many options of, of what you can do. And um, you don't just have to be a therapist, right? Or, yeah. um, you know, so, so what is it that you actually kind of do now? Like, what is a typical, um, maybe not day to day, because I'm sure that can change pretty frequently, but what are some of the different um, jobs and uh, things that you do? Yeah. So today, um, Jessica Lewis, who's my business manager, and I were a two-person company. Um, we uh, we work mostly in industry. So uh, primarily, our book of business is in construction, which is so fascinating for me to think about. Like, how did I get here? Like, oh my gosh, never in my wildest dreams, fifteen years ago, would, would I be thinking I would be primarily working in construction? But um, it's exactly where I need to be. Uh, our, our niche is really around workplace suicide prevention, and we do speaking, training, and consulting in that area. So a typical day for me, well, first of all, I get up and I do like a gazillion self-care rituals because if I don't do them first yes. thing in the morning, then the day is shot. <laughs> so I, uh, I walk the dog uh, in the darkness because I'm a super early riser um, under the stars and practice gratitude and I have a support group that I go to and I'm, I just reflect on the bigger picture of things, which always sets me off on a good foot. Um, then I work out and write in my journal and meditate and, and anyway, all of that good stuff on the front end of the day, your day of self-care. That's great. <laughs> yeah. No. And if I miss it, I'm a mess like that. It's, it's super important. Um, and then uh, usually it's a combination of uh, a speaking engagement or two, or training that I'm doing, um, really focused on uh, the, the speaking are more like keynotes. So that's the, they're really designed to kind of inspire people to take action. And a lot of people that I talk to rarely think about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So they are called to action, um, which of course is just a first step, but it's an important one. If you don't think you have a problem, or if you don't think your company has a problem, then you don't, do anything. Right. So we got to get, you know, we got to get it on the radar first and then we got to give people like a strategy. So that's kind of where the consulting comes in is to give people, um, here's the stuff we know that works. Here's the culture of your company. Mm -hmm. Here's how these things fit together. Here's our recommended first step. Here's what things look like in five years. Um, and so the consulting work is incredibly, um, well, hard because uh, every mm -hmm. time we got to start over again to learn uh, about the unique cultures of companies and the unique cultures of industry. Uh, but I love it because for me, that's where the change really happens. If we can shift the infrastructure within an industry, within an organization, the change is far more likely to be sticky and profound than a one-off speaking engagement or a flyby training or a one-day awareness day or that kind of thing. Um, so I love kind of with the deep dives that happen with consulting. And we do, we spend a lot of time listening to the, to the workers uh, and what they see as the um, barriers and opportunities to move this forward. Um, and then we're really about empowering the workers within whatever it is, the, the company, the union, the professional association to own this work and to drive it internally. So we're just alongside cheering and coaching and giving them tools and kind of getting them ready. And then, we let them run because they're far more likely to impact their peers than any kind of outsider is. Oh yeah. I can, I could see that. Um, and you said that primarily the, the kind of field you're working in within that is construction. Yeah, mostly construction. So right now um, a lot of large uh, contractors that have um, 
you know, national and international footprints. Um, a lot of unions, big ones, the Sheet Metal Air Rail Transportation Union, the United, United Association of Pipe Fitters, um, you know, unions that go all the way up into Canada and have hundreds of thousands of members. Um, we also work with some professional associations that, you know, have a lot of reach into the communities of construction. Um, and so, you know, we've just developed this really unique niche. I mean, I, I, I know, like, I'm a, I'm a girly do-gooder. Like, I am pretty out of the scope of what they normally talk to. Right. But because I've been doing this for a while, uh, I have built some trust internally with the industry. So they, they just kind of pass me along. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, she knows what she does what to do. She's, she's been working with us for a while. And so that's how it kind of goes. Um, and then I've got a couple passion projects that kind of also... Uh, demand my attention because I, I love them. Um, one is our nonprofit, which is called United Suicide Survivors International. And we are about lifting up the voices of people who've lived through this stuff and creating storytellers that go out into the world and change people's thoughts and feelings and attitudes about what it means to fight suicide and what we need in our communities to prevent that kind of despair um, from taking people's lives. Uh, and I love love United Survivors. Uh, we're scrappy, but we're mighty. Like we're super mighty. We're a tiny little board. We just hired our first, uh, our first staff member. We're so proud. Oh yeah. Uh, I know. It's all been volunteer. And um, we've created a couple storytelling courses. We have monthly webinars. We're very much involved in the workplace stuff. And so, you know, tiny group with a lot of reach out internationally into the communities and um, try to kind of bit, bring in the storytellers and then lifting them up. Yeah. Are you guys Colorado based or? Uh, our headquarters is, is in Colorado, but okay. we have board members from all over Seattle and Ohio and Missouri and Connecticut and wow. California. And I think that's it. Um, and then we have an international advisory committee from Nepal and Australia and New Zealand and UK and Canada and Brazil. And so they help us make sure that our, our work is, you know, comes close to being culturally resonant. Of uh, course, you can't be all things to all people, but we're trying to hit enough of a middle ground that people can find our our, our tools useful um, in their own communities, wherever they may be, even though it's just in, just in English right now, that we did take our construction website and we translated it and transculturated it into eight languages for nine different countries. And I think it is, with the exception of the World Health Organization, possibly the only suicide prevention um, website that has done that, that has really, um, translated. Yeah. Not just like through a Google translate, like I, we had boots on the ground translators, making sure that the, the images were right. And the words um, chosen were the correct way to put it. And that we were driving people to local resources and all of that kind of work. It was a huge undertaking last year, but it, it's pretty cool. How cool. I mean, I can't help but think like I back when I was in college, which wasn't that long ago, but I I did a brief stint in construction for a summer, um, did not <laughs> excel in that at all, but it was just a summer job. Right. And I can't help but think, though, just what I observed during that time and how neglected some of those guys are and and in terms of their mental health like it's just not addressed in the slightest. And I could, you know, I just remember hearing stories about their lives and um, so, I, wow, I just I think it's really cool that that's a, a niche you've gotten into and, and very much needed, I think. Yeah, thank you. Like we, um, you know, we had an inkling early on that the 
you know, that male dominated industries were going to be impacted because it's the men who are dying more than the women. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that men are despairing more than women, women attempt more than men. So probably equal levels of despair. It's just men are more lethal when they do. Um, but then within that, within the male dominated industries, the patterns are pretty consistent on construction and extraction, which includes oil and gas and mining. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both always fighting for number one and number two, and they're very similar kinds of industries culturally. They're very stoic, um, tough-minded, self-reliant, uh, badass, if I could say that. You know, they're a little bit ri- risk-taking, a little bit reckless sometimes, um, often lots of substance use issues, often lots of pain from their work. It's hard labor. Um, and so they often are carrying a lot of, of physical pain, which then can tend to lead to the opiate addiction issue. Right. Um, a lot of them are traveling often and away from their families. And, you know, in some sense, some instances, they're living in really substandard situations, oh, yeah. like tent cities or awful types of hotels or motels or whatever, you know, eating crappy food and, you know, just isolated and lonely and just working real hard to provide for their families. Um, mm. And it's just hard. Yeah. No, I, and I remember that. Like, I remember, you know, some of the guys, they, I remember they had a project they were working on that was in, I think it was in Glenwood. So, I mean, it was a, it was a drive away for sure. And I think they ended up just like getting a motel for like three weeks or something like that. Yeah. Really crappy motel. Um, I do remember there being a lot of substance use going on in that community. And um, do, do you see kind of higher levels of substance use when, when oh you- definitely oh. Uh, now I, I work mostly with with um, kind of these really large contractors so on a day-to-day base I'm working with the people who tell the people what to do but um, but the but the trades that I'm associated with again I'm working with organizers and you know trying to empower them to help the people with boots on the ground but I hear their stories because they all came up the ranks you know sure. about what it was yeah. like a lot of times um, and it just is, it's a hard life, you know, for a lot of them, especially the craft folks that they're often living paycheck to paycheck and there's huge swings in the economy and then they're out of a job or they get injured and they're out of, out of work. And, you know, they're just, you know, hanging on by a thread. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you're doing this work with consulting and construction, you have your, uh, is it a nonprofit you said? the mm-hmm. the uh, united suicide survivor i, I don't remember no, no, you got it united okay, suicide cool. survivors international very good okay and we th- call it united survivors for short okay which also then abbreviates to us aren't we clever yeah, yeah see that clever. see what we did there yes um and you've got some other projects going on i mean you just have so much i feel like you i know you started the man therapy or were part of that that process and yeah i was a co-founder on the man therapy project which is uh just another beloved project that has come out of all of this work, um, partnering with the uh, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment and a full service advertising agency called Cactus. Back in, I don't know, 2007, um, we were all kind of independently looking at the data in Colorado and we were like, huh, look at this. It's guys who are dying, but it's not just that. It's mostly men in the middle years. Um, Most of them have one attempt and it's fatal and most of them have never stepped foot in any kind of mental health resource. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty important gap to fill if we're going to really be serious about lowering our rates. So then we kind of found each other and we're like, all right, what are we going to do? And we're like, well, we're going to scrap everything we've been doing because it's not working and we're going to see what's possible. And we're going to figure that out by actually listening to the guys. So we spent like, I don't know, 18 months, two years just listening. We had 
lots of interviews and focus groups of, of men who had lived through suicidal intensity or people who had surrounded men at risk and did surveys. We consulted with all kinds of national and international experts on gender psychology and men's mental health and all this stuff. And, um, and then we figured out a couple of things. We figured out, number one, it needed to be humorous, uh, which was kind of jarring when we first figured that out. Like, well, oh my gosh, how are we going to make suicide prevention funny? Like that doesn't seem possible. Uh, but luckily for us, the creative geniuses at Cactus were like, oh yeah, we got this. I'm like, all right. And, the, and of course, they put a bunch of stuff in front of us. We were like, oh, hell no. Oh, nope. Nope. We're not doing that. Nope. 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 And then we we're like, yes. Um, and so what they developed was a fake doctor named Dr. Rich Mahogany, who is basically playing upon some of the traditional norms of masculinity and using humor to show men on why they get men in trouble in this space. Um, and that, you know, just a slight shift in that uh, can, can really help men. So really playing upon, you know, a, a, a congruent norm, if you will, not telling men that they're bad, like that doesn't work or shaming them, but just saying, you know, if you look at this a different way, your buddies need you, mm. right? And, and everybody's going to take their turn falling down here. So you better be ready to help your buddies when they do, because they're going to need you just like you need them when you have a hard time or when you need help with whatever, uh, you know, yeah. watching your kids or cleaning out your gutters or whatever it is like we helping each other is an important thing. Um, so we use the humor to kind of bring men into the conversation proactively. Uh, and then our main thing we're trying to get them to do is uh, self-screen. Cause that's another thing they told us is like, you know what, before you send us off to go to that thing over there, that seems really daunting. And I'm talking about therapy. Yeah. It seems daunting. It doesn't seem like it's going to work. And yeah, we just don't want to, like at all. We don't want to. Uh, before you make us do that, can we just see if there's stuff I can do to help myself first? And can you give me a threshold, like when I should be really worried about myself? So basically, and this is a, it's a good message for everybody. What can we do to empower ourselves to make mental health our own priority? Because nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody. Um, so how do we empower ourselves to take better care of our mental health? So that was really the intention of man therapy to get men to self-screen for depression, anxiety, substance use, and anger. Um, and then say, Whoa, didn't know that. Didn't know that my drinking was so above everybody else's or that it was actually causing me the problems over here that I'm stressed about. Um, or like, Oh, I didn't know that I was meeting this, all of these symptoms for depression. I should take a deeper look at that. And then as soon as they complete the 20 point head inspection is what we call it. Then content starts to pop up like Pinterest. Uh, so little, little things, right? Little self-help, peer help, professional help, crisis help, depending on what they tell us. And then also if they identify as a first responder or a military and veteran, they'll also get customized content that way. Um, and then we can see what they do. That's the other beautiful thing about this website. We can see where they go, not on an individual level, but kind of the algorithms of, of the pathways through, um, you know, do they end up reaching for crisis resources? You know, do they explore some of the storytelling videos that are on there? Um, you know, we can see that they're taking action, basically, which is really what we want them to do. Come in, be curious, right? What the heck is this funny thing about mental health? And it kind of speaks to me at the same time, take the self-screening thing and then get put on an action pathway on, on what to do from there. Yeah. What have you actually noticed? Like how, how has this developed? How is this turning out to be something useful for men? Yeah. So we launched it um, 
July of 2012 with an article in the New York Times. So huge international splash right out of the gate, just because it's so provocative, right? And so different than what anybody else is doing. Um, and, uh, And then we went into a model of licensing the creative to states and countries. So I think to date, I don't know, probably in the range of 20 some odd states have licensed this campaign. And then the entire country of Australia licensed it for a number of years. And basically what it means, obviously a website is freely accessible to anybody. So at that level, anybody can go to mantherapy.org and take the self-screening tool and see what the resources are. By the way, the whole experience, the whole user experience is funny. Like the funny stuff never stops. It's pretty which, funny. I've checked it out. It's right? pretty funny. <laughs> you guys did a good job with it. Yeah. I mean, the writers over at Cactus, they're brilliant. They're absolutely yeah. brilliant. It's a very hard note to hit uh, humor um, and not be offensive. Right. Although, you know, there's a small group that are still very offended by it, whatever. Uh, but the overwhelming majority of our end users are like, this is brilliant. This speaks to me. This made this topic of mental health approachable in in a way that nothing else did, right. you know, it, it kind of lowered all my barriers and anxiety. And it's just like, huh, I'm just going to check this out because I, I'm not intimidated by it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to, you have to know your audience, right. Which is what you guys are doing. I mean, typical, typical masculinity, however, we've defined that, right. It, they're more guarded, right. I mean, we don't like to talk about our emotions as much in a, in a typical generalized sense. Right. And, and humor is a great way of breaking down those barriers and, and uh, breaking down the walls to kind of start to access some of those things and those deeper feelings. So I think yeah. it's a really smart move. Yeah, no humor is the secret sauce yeah. for a lot of the things that we're doing. Um, you know, I remember one of the comments that came, so we've done a, a number of evaluations on it too, because Anything that's out of the box with mental health or suicide usually gets sideways glances from the mental health community. What are you doing? Right. You know, and especially humor is like, oh, scary. Like, what are you doing? Making fun of things that aren't funny. I'm like, well, why don't you sit down? Because all the stuff you've been doing have, or we, I'm part of that group, um, you know, that we've been doing hasn't been working. So how about we give something another shot? But as soon as we, you know, launched, we were on the evaluation because a lot of well-intended new ideas sometimes don't work, mm-hmm. sometimes cause harm. So we wanted to make sure that that wasn't the case. And so our, our very early indicators we did, we built an evaluation into the platform from the get-go. Um, and when we did you know, a pretty major review of that data, um, it was working just as we had hoped. The, um, you know, it was attracting the majority of people who were coming in the door were men of working age. Um, the majority of them were, were there for, I was, I was here for me or I, I was curious. I'm fine. I'll take curious. Curious is great because yeah. again, we're trying to get proactive. We're trying to get upstream from a crisis. And, um, you know, the majority of them, the number one thing they loved was the humor. They loved the professionalism of it. That's another thing, you know, mental health people put up these websites all the time and think that they've got something useful. Hello. We're not website designers. We're okay. mental health professionals and our websites stink. <laughs> they're very wordy and clinical and boring and they don't have a good user experience. Like you've got to partner with real website people um, and real messengers. That was the other eye opening for me. Like advertising people know how to get people's attention. Yeah. They know how to cut through the clutter so that people actually focus on, on what matters. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. 
I'm curious what your, you mentioned there was a self-screening tool. I'm curious how that's worked for you guys. You know, I, I always, as, as a more, you know, face-to-face kind of therapist, I always get a little bit cautious with those kind of screeners just cause like, for example, something that's come up recently for me, and this is a little bit maybe outside of uh, some of the things you guys are screening for, for sure. But, um, I've had a lot of uh, both kids and adults coming in who are like, oh, I took these self-screening tools online and I think I have DID. And I'm like, "Uh, I don't think you do, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So these are not diagnostic screening tools. Okay. They're just like, should I be worried about myself? And, um, and we base them off uh, standardized tools in the, in the literature that said these kinds of questions were, were most predictive for people who needed additional support. Um, and then we, we mahoganized them. So we took the, you know, the, the humorous tone of our fake doctor and wrapped them around the, the question. So for example, one of them, I'm not going to get it entirely right, was, um, you know, telemarketers and mosquitoes are highly irritating or something like that. <laughs> um, so that's the mahoganized tone, right? Right. Um, and then here's the standardized question. How easily are you angered? Um, so that's a standardized question with a little sentence in front of it that kind of keeps people compelled to kind of go through the, the tool. Um, and so what we did, we didn't, we didn't lump them into like, you have depression and you have a substance use disorder. We said right. um, either you are uh, a-okay or you're so-so or you're not so hot um, as this kind of a, a rough cut on a first pass. And with each message, they got a message of, you know, keep going. So if you're A-okay, like if you came out looking super resilient and, you know, doing well in all of the areas, great. Just like any other fitness strategy, you got to keep on working out. Um, If you were, you know, so-so, then we've got some tools for you. And here they are. And if you were uh, were, uh, not so hot, then we're connecting you directly to the crisis resources. So if anybody indicated they had any degree of suicidal thoughts, or if they came up a high level on all of the scores, um, we're going to fast track them to um, the crisis page, which had the National Suicide Prevention um, Lifeline and the crisis text line and the veterans lines, and just give them a number of opportunities to connect with somebody right away. And so that's kind of what we did. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. Um, We had uh, a number of people comment in the evaluation, like, listen, I know this guy's fake. Like, I know he's not there, like actually talking to me, but I don't care. Like he said exactly the things I needed to hear. He was very reassuring. And now I feel like I've got a path or they went to that. We have a kind of a a real guy video testimonial library also. So people could go over there and listen to the stories of other men who had walked the path before them. Um, And so overwhelmingly it was the humor. It was the professional kind of um, production of the thing that felt engaging and respectful. Uh, there was a, there was a guy who said, um, you know, when I go to those clinical websites for mental health, it just sucks the living soul out of me. I was like, Oh, wow. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> I was like, it's just so dry and boring. Like they don't actually see me as a human being, just a collection of symptoms kind of thing. Um, where this experience felt like they, they were seen and known in a different way. Um, and, uh, you know, they, there was a whole bunch of things that they liked in that regard. They, many of them liked Dr. Mahogany, although our military and veterans um, in our focus groups, they're like, yeah, he's not manly enough. And also we're pretty sure he didn't serve. So we don't relate to him. And so we took, when we were creating campaigns for our, our, our service members, um, we took 
the character of Dr. Mahogany, we just kind of pulled him into the background a little bit. They said, we love the humor. So we kept all the humor, but we just pulled the character in the back and then we added a red star because a red star means it's military for whatever reason. So, so that was a, that was a key insight, but you know, it wasn't universally loved and there was a, you know, probably about 7% of the people who evaluated it hated it. And when I talk about hated it, I'm talking about all capital letters and a lot of exclamation points hated it. And, uh, and so we trace back, like, who are you people that hate it so much? And it's one of two groups. It's either mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Sit down. You know, if you could come up with something better, that's more impactful, have at it. All right. But give us a, give us a chance here. And the other group that was really put off by it were, I would say men who had done their work, you know, men who had really taken a deep look at norms of masculinity and were really trying hard to, to kind of open themselves up to other ways of being. And, and they just felt like it was such a throwback um, to an earlier point of thinking about masculinity. And again, I said to those guys, you're awesome. And this is not for you. Like this is for the guys who haven't thought about this at all. um, And who are out there white knuckling it. (laughs) I mean, which is the majority of men. I mean, yeah. You know, a lot of the men I see are not <laughs> the kind of men who have previously done this introspective work of what is gender? What is masculinity? Right. How am I living that out? Am, am I living out gender based norms? Right. All these different things. Right. I mean, that's that's not the case. And and that's OK. to yeah. extent, Right. You know, and so that's that is interesting. I'm, I'm curious why so many mental health professionals were so against that. Oh, because uh you, you can't make fun of something that's not funny and you can't have a mental health intervention on a website and, you know, and, 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 you know, it didn't fit their norms of what it looked like to have, you know, this type of work being out in the world. They were very concerned about a whole bunch of things, but mostly you can't make fun of something funny. Yeah. That's exactly where we need humor. <laughs> it's where things are not funny because humor is an amazing coping strategy And it's amazing thing that brings people together. Um, And yeah, when used responsibly, and by that, I mean, you know, you you don't like make fun of other people. You make fun of a situation. You know, you make fun, you you, you laugh at the tragedy of life because you you either do that or you you can't stop crying, you know? And, you know, and first responders have learned this along the way and emergency room healthcare people have learned this along the way and our warriors have learned the way, like, if you can't laugh, you're going to die. <laughs> like you've got to find, you got to find a thread of humor in there. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's dark, dark humor, but that's, it's okay. Especially if it brings people into the conversation where they're now willing to hear what you have to say next. Yeah. No, I totally get that. I mean, I saw one of my, uh, my full-time job is in a jail as a correction yeah. counselor. And so um, that comes up a lot is where we, <laughs> we have to use some humor when it comes to some of the situations we work with, because otherwise it's like, holy shit right right sucks and this is really hard to process and and so sometimes all we can do is is just laugh at the situation of like this is life this right right is the uh the story of life that we're all given right right and and yeah i mean if you look back on the on the impact of the pandemic humor was a big way the world coped you know all the youtube videos and you know, just like we had to sit back and just laugh at our situation because it was just so overwhelming and find points of humor where we could all connect to like, you know, going to work in slippers, you know, as an example, <laughs> stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. Did you ever see um, 
Bo Burnham's Inside of You Netflix special. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd encourage you to see that. I think it's really it's so Bo Burnham is a comedian um, and he made this Netflix special of uh, when he was in quarantine. So it's just him. Only him. Oh, I do think I know. He, he talks like a million miles an hour in every single line. He's like crushing it. I'm like, how do you do that? Yeah. Like, and it's fast. And it's like, you're just, you're running along after him because it's so good. I, I have heard of him. He's great. All right. I'll go find that. I, I feel like there's, there's definitely some, some segments in that where he, um, like he, he has a song in the show called Healing the World Through Comedy. I don't know if that's the name of the song, but it's like the main line. So I'm guessing it is. But um, and he, he kind of goes through this existential thing of like, well, my job is a comedian. And I feel like what is the point of that? Like, you know, there's there's people dying. There's children hungry. The world's in a pandemic. Like, what is the use of comedy right now? And then he kind of goes back and forth of like, well, I'm going to heal the world through comedy then. And awesome. Oh, wonderful thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Very cool. Yeah. So corrections, not a, yeah. not an easy gig for anybody involved. No. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we have a wonderful counseling and mental health staff there that I'm really, uh, really admired that our county has, has done the work to hire those professionals. And I recognize that not every county or state facility does that. Um, but I see it, you know, I talk with the deputies sometimes and I, I see the impact it has on their mental health. And sometimes they, you know, when we're working with inmates who by and large, the majority are coming in with mental health issues, whether yeah. it's, you know, related to depression, anxiety, trauma is a big thing, substance use for the majority. Um, and a lot of these deputies are just kind of like, what do we do? Right. Like, what do we do when they <laughs> they come to us? Because they're, they're the front line. Right. Even more so than we are, because we're up in our offices doing our notes, right. meeting with them or you know, we can't see everybody in the jail. And so, um, but they're interacting with everybody. Right. And so, you know, they'll, they'll talk to the inmates and and they're just like, how do we handle these things when they come up to us with, with this, or, you know, when they are acutely mentally ill, right. With, with uh, high rates of suicidal ideation or attempts in the facility, or if they are, you know, actively psychotic or manic or whatever those things are, it's, it takes a toll on them because they don't know how to process that. They don't have those healthy coping skills yet. Yeah. And it can be scary because people get to be really unpredictable and agitated and activated and yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately just, it's, it's unfortunate that our jails have become our mental health treatment centers, but that's another story. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a big problem to solve because mm-hmm. also there's a lot of money involved and whenever there's a lot of money involved, yeah, makes it even harder to solve because somebody is very, very intent on keeping it in place. Yep. And by somebody, I mean, a lot of, a lot of buddies, a lot of people, a lot that goes into it that just cannot be solved overnight for sure. Yeah. Um, well, so Obviously, suicide, as we've already been talking about a lot, is like the main, it seems like the main focus of uh, a lot of your work and a lot of what you've done to give back to the community, uh, both local and at large, which I think is really cool, by the way, I meant to say that earlier, the fact that you're, you're giving back to the local community and you're reaching so many people worldwide. Um, what, so, so my audience, 
at least in, in intention, is, is more of just a, a general audience of listeners who uh, maybe are interested in learning more about mental health, learning more about these different topics we talk about. Um, what, this is going to be a broad question, but what advice, what um, maybe information can you give us in terms of, uh, you know, interacting with suicide um, in our daily lives? Not that it's necessarily showing up in, in a daily sense, but like you mentioned earlier, everybody at some point is impacted at this at this point in time, I think, uh, is impacted by suicide in one form or another. Right. Um, and it's a heavy thing, as I'm as I know, you know, um, how what are some of the ways that you have coped through suicide loss? What are some of the ways that maybe um, my listeners can can practice and develop these coping skills to deal with such a heavy thing? Yeah. Um, so you asked me like eight questions in that. So I'm going to, uh, cause I'm like, okay, I got an answer. Oh, okay. Now I got a different answer. Okay. And then we'll go there. So here's what I'm going to kind of say broadly is that going to one of the points that you had mentioned in there, which is that, you know, many, many people have been impacted by this in some way, but we just don't know this about each other because we don't necessarily talk about it very much. And I'm going to say with the caveat that, um, the younger generation, actually does talk about it quite a bit and is far well-versed in a lot of the things that are, you know, pretty powerful within that conversation than their uh, older, older peers. Um, so this is one place where I see the younger generation powerfully shifting culture up. Um, so, you know, new workers, interns, whatever, um, are teaching their bosses about, this is how it works and this is how you do it. And this is where you go and this is how you talk about it and all that stuff. So it's, it's awesome to see. Um, but one of the things I do in my construction work is I do an anonymous and confidential poll, you know, through zoom largely and, you know, on how you've been impacted with your own experiences of depression, anxiety, trauma, or addiction. Um, you've known someone who has been fighting suicide or um, has lived through a suicide attempt. Uh, you've lost somebody. You know, I ask all these questions about the different ways that lived experience with mental health and suicide show up for people. And in my construction audience, okay, so not your typical audience to raise your hand and say, this is true for me. In my construction audience on an anonymous and confidential poll, every time I do it, somewhere between 90 and 98% of people will say, yes, I've been impacted. Uh-huh. 90 to 98%. And so my biggest takeaway message is assume it's there assume it's on the menu or it was previously on the menu or they've been one degree separated from someone who has been on the menu. Like it's there, assume it's there because I feel so many times people are waiting for this big red flag to kind of swoop down and make it obvious. And a lot of times that big red flag never comes. So it's about assuming it's there and being willing to open up the conversation around it even if you're wrong. So this is the other fear that people have like, I might be wrong. So what? Like, if you're wrong, you know, let's play it out. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You might be embarrassed. Okay. You kind of probably live through that. They might get offended. Okay. That's a little harder. You know, they might get offended and upset. That's a big fear that people have. But honestly, if you learn how to talk about this in the right way, um, more people are grateful than offended and upset. They're like, oh no, I'm not there yet, but I'm really grateful you asked. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some people that get offended and upset. And one of the things I tell people is that it's not about you. Like, 
if you come into the conversation with like, I care about you and I know you're going through a hard time and I'm wondering if this is true for you and they come back at you with their claws out, that's not about you. That's about them protecting themselves mm-hmm. um, because they're fearing something. They're fearing that you're going to judge them. They're fearing that you're going to react in a way. And that's not an unfounded fear. They're fearing that you're, they're going to react in a way that's going to take away their rights or their guns or their freedom or their opportunities. Um, and these are not unfounded thoughts. Like there's reasons for people to be fearful in that space. So just know it's coming from a place of self-protection and fear. And then you just stay the broken record. I'm here. I care about you. I'm noticing. I'm wondering. Um, your genuine compassion and curiosity is, is your, your ticket into making that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so assume it's on the menu, come into the conversation more from a point of view of being curious and compassionate than of being scared and reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then know your resources. Like if you can, if you can walk alongside someone and get them to a place where they're like, yeah, I could probably use some additional support. You should know where to turn um, and you should have some knowledge and, and like insight about that. Like, oh, I know this great resource over here because I've called it or I've used it or they came and did a thing. Um, that warm handoff um, is really helpful for people to feel like the resources are trustworthy when they're just like, a, oh, here's a number. I don't know what it does. I don't know. I don't want to think about it. Or here's a website. Uh, good luck. Uh, yeah, not likely to go well. So really get to know your resources. And then the, the last piece is to really be able to follow up. Um, what happens often is that people get scared. Again, I get it. It's scary. Um, but when we get scared and we're on the end of, of being, you know, somebody is, who's trying to support, we do this thing sometimes like where, where we hot potato people, like we bounce them over to someone and are like, woo, okay, I'm out. You know, that's it. I did my thing. I'm out. And, you know, a, a lot of times that person will get bounced around from resource to resource and person to person um, because everybody's scared. And what they want most is to know that they matter um, and to know that people deeply care about them. And yet they get bum, 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 like all the way through. So having a point of follow-up, which doesn't mean you have to get all in up into their business, but just, you know, touch points here and there. How about we go out for coffee or, you know, let, let me uh, give you a call on Friday to see how things are going. And um, even little, what we call non-demand caring contacts, these little texts that we can send each other or messages that we can leave each other that just say, you know, I, I, you care, I care about you and you matter to me. Little tiny nudges like that can be like brain candy for someone who's really fighting to stay. Um, so there's a lot that the everyday person can do to help one another. Um, when it comes to suicide grief, uh, one of the things that's, that can be really helpful is to find uh, a community, whatever community makes sense to you that, have, that has already walked the path. And I think that's true for all kinds of issues related to suicide, sure. um, living through a suicide attempt or suicidal thoughts is to find peers who have had a similar journey. Um, because yeah, when it first happens, you feel like you're the only family, you're the only one. Um, and it's overwhelming grief. Like, mm. I mean, if you love the person, there's certainly people who lost people to suicide and they're like good riddance, you know, they were an abuser or they were, sure. you know, a toxic person in their life. And mm. um, they're not very vocal, but I know they're out there and they're organized. Actually. They're like this underground group. I met one of them. He was a, he was a videographer in a, um, in a, in a presentation I did. He's like, psst, psst, come back to the room. I'm like, what is it? He's like, 
yeah, not all of us are sad that these people are gone. And I'm like, wow. And he's like, yeah, my, my, my dad was horrifically traumatizing to me and a, and a sexual abuser and like all this stuff. And so when he killed himself, I was like, oh, thank God. And I was like, wow, that makes sense to me, you know, that they were not all loved. Um, he's like, yeah, we're kind of organized on Facebook. There's a bunch of us. I'm like, hmm. interesting. And also interesting that I get why you don't raise your hands uh, because you could be demonized by all the people who were, are, are very bereaved and missing loved ones, you know, who have a very different experience. So um, for, for that group, for the people that are both experiencing profound and complicated grief right alongside the trauma of suicide loss, um, you know, it can be a long haul for a lot of us. So, so, so one, find peers. Um, there are virtual groups for suicide loss survivors. There are in-person groups, or at least there were before COVID. Um, I think they all went virtual too. Um, but Alliance of Hope is a great place to get started. They can help you find peers, whether you know, you're a parent who lost a child or someone who lost their partner or someone who lost a friend or that kind of thing. They can help you find your peer group um, online. And the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention um, does have a directory of all of the active uh, suicide loss survivor groups. Um, and, and I know groups are not for everybody, so that might not be your path, uh, but those are helpful for many people. Sure. Um, there's also a bunch of books out there that can be really helpful if that's more like your jam, you know, just kind of reading about coping day to day and, and kind of about what to expect that many people go through in terms of this interwoven experience around grief and trauma. It's very hard. Um, and then finally, you know, a lot of us have found healing in making meaning. And I know that sounds really like impossible to people early on the journey of, of suicide loss, but, you know, grief is an energy that needs to be directed. And in the initial days, it's very much directed in, in honoring, you know, finding ways to honor the life that was lived. Um, but this kind of grief lingers. And for many of us, we have found healing in finding a way to give back, um, helping other people in a way that makes sense to us. Um, and it, you know, it could take so many different forms. It could just be, you know, volunteering at a walk, you know, serving water to the walkers, that kind of thing. It could be serving on boards. It could be, um, you know, connecting, you know, we have great resources here in Colorado that help connect kids to, uh, vetted mental health professionals, um, and volunteering for that in, in some of their efforts, um, there's all kinds of ways to make meaning, or it could be not so much suicide specific, but things that were related to the distress. So volunteering in the areas of trauma or military service or, you know, whatever floats your boat or in your faith community, in the schools, doesn't matter, but somehow taking that energy of grief and then channeling it into something that it seems feels meaningful to you in a, in a broader way yeah. can be very helpful. Yeah. Those are all great. I appreciate you sharing all that. Hopefully yeah. My listeners can, can take something from that and, and implement it. You know, I wanted to backtrack a little bit because I realized that I kind of brushed over um, the impact of suicide on women, right? Uh, we, we spent a little bit of time talking about how, um, I mean, the suicide rates are, are higher for men because of the more lethal attempts, right? But, but women attempt more, right? What... Mm -hmm if at all, or, or I guess how, if at all, uh, does the conversation change uh, around suicide with women? Um, well, it's a lot more um, norm congruent for women to reach out to one another and to reach out to all kinds of health things proactively. We're much better at taking care of ourselves 
Um, and again, because we've been socialized to do so. So we're much more likely to go to our preventative healthcare, our preventative dentistry. Um, and it is, it is fine for us to more fine. And again, lots of diversity within the category of women. Um, but what I'm saying, generally speaking, we're not as troubled by one direction helping relationships, whereas men, uh, it, it, they feel a little bit more comfortable when it's reciprocal. I help you, you help me. Therefore, therefore we're kind of even Steven. Um, women are less bothered by that. We're like, yeah, we'll, we'll go get help. And that's it. You know, um, so more pro or more proactive, we're, not, we're less bothered by reaching out for help um, from people we don't know. Uh, and also our, our friends and family, much more likely to earlier on in the journey, just kind of feel like it's a big part of our bonding to one another, that we are vulnerable to one another. And, um, and that sharing those vulnerabilities is empowering, not something we're ashamed of. And again, we don't all get there quickly or even get, I'll get there at all. Um, but generally speaking, that's one of those norm things that, that um, tend to be a little bit more true for women when you look at the aggregated data. Um, so, so that's a little bit of a, of a different piece. Um, but the piece I want to bring up too is this shift that is happening, I would say across men and women um, and also in, in the spaces of um, people of color and um, gender diversity communities and LGBTQ plus communities, which is the fact that the conversation about suicide is not just about mm -hmm. mental health. And, and that's a narrative that we have perpetuated in the United States that does not get perpetuated in other places in the world because they realize like you're a person in an environment and you can't extract the person from that environment without, you know, misrepresenting what's happening. Um, and the reason why that shift is important to really see suicide in the context of the larger culture and systems and environments is because it's an easy out to say, oh, it's just those troubled people. Oh, it's so sad. It's so tragic. Those troubled people, they just need more counseling. That's it. They just need more counseling. That is the solution. And I'm like, <laughs> um, you know, we can send our, you know, LGBTQ plus folks to counseling all damn day. You know, if, if the world doesn't stop the, the bullying and toxicity and prejudice and discrimination and hate crimes, uh, we're never going to get in front of it, you know? And similarly with, you know, we've learned so much in 2020, you know, it had always been there, but, but the forces of 2020 made it erupt to the surface about, you know, we can send people of color to counselors all day and still, until we stop treating people so horribly, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of people in despair. Yeah. Yeah. So really looking at it through that, that almost uh, societal lens, um, really addressing yeah, it from social a justice lens, whether it be, whether it be discrimination or just dignified living, like paying people a living wage. And you know, this is why I love to work with the unions and stuff, because again, they're like, yeah, we can send our members to counseling all dang day, but if we can't pay people a living wage, they're stressed every day about how they're going to keep a roof over their family's heads. Yeah. And, so, yeah, so it's a both and, I mean, I really feel like it's a both and conversation that we really need to, um, you know, empower people to be proactive around their mental health and to take care of themselves and to early identify like, oh, I haven't been sleeping lately, or I don't feel like eating, or I don't want to do the things I'd love to do. There's something 
not quite right about me. I don't feel like myself, like having people self-identify that um, and then be totally feeling like it's normal and appropriate to take a step to, to self-correct that, you know, whether that means reaching out to a peer or a puppy or, you know, you know, just changing their game a little bit for the moment to um, get back on track. Like, yeah, individuals need to be proactive and, and thoughtful around that. And sometimes you can't because it's too bad, you know, it's too overwhelming. Um, and so then we need to make it easy and affordable and culturally resonant for them to get additional supports in their community. Um, so we're going to do that kind of stuff, but in equal measure as we're also looking at the things that are happening in the environment that are really weighing on people um, and, and kind of driving them into those dark holes. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, I feel like this will be a good way for us to wrap up is what have you noticed with the impact of COVID on, on suicide? Yeah. So um, especially in the early days of COVID, right? We were all freaked out unless you weren't, which is, you know, interesting. Like, how could you not be freaked out? But I believe me, like we did tons of surveys globally uh, in the United States, in the construction space, um, thousands and thousands of these little pulse check surveys that basically asked, how's it going out there? Are things better than they were before? Are they worse? What do you need? How can we help? Um, and in, in South America, it was all like, um, really like so many of the, so many of the responses were, thank God, thank God, thank God. Gratitude. That was their response. Thank God I have a job. Thank God my family is safe. Um, In Europe, there was a lot of frustration because the borders closed and they couldn't get back to their families and they were missing funerals and birthdays and, you know, just missing their loved ones. Um, In Asia, they were like, and this is not China, but in other parts of Asia, they're like, yeah, we, we don't have an issue. (laughs) We controlled it really well from the beginning and it's a little inconvenient, but we're fine. Um, and in, in the United States, guess what? It was masks, 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 masks. Everybody's so upset about the masks. Um, and, and like, this thing is a farce, like it doesn't impact me, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, I'm just saying lots of different re- responses to that. But, but, you know, in, in the United States early on, we were panicked, like lots of panic out there in the conversation. Oh my God, the skyrocketing suicide rates. Oh my gosh, it's going to be horrible. Everybody's going to kill themselves. And it wasn't without reason. Like we had a perfect storm of, of risk factors with the isolation and the uncertainty and, and, you know, the disruption to everything. Um, and then we had early indicators that were good. The domestic violence calls went up. Um, alcohol sales went through the roof. We, we were bored. And so we drank a lot. Um, gun purchases went up. Every time there was a big uh, surge in the social unrest, uh, people went out and bought a bunch of guns. Um, you know, we had all of the, and, you know, employment fluctuations. We had all of these early warning signs and risk factors kind of coming to a point in time. So it wasn't, unfounded to have a little bit of concern about increasing suicide rates. But for those of us in public health, we're all like, follow the data, follow the data. The people, human beings will surprise you. And especially in large scale disasters, um, early on suicide rates tend to go down. So early on after 9-11, suicide rates went down. And one of the things that is a pattern is that when we have large scale tragedies like that, um, it's often the case, not always, but it's often the case that people start to pull together. So if you think back to like March and April of 2020, we had some of that, right? We had, you know, 
people making masks for each other and people delivering food to residential homes of, you know, assisted living kinds of things. And, you know, here in, in Colorado and in some other places, people were howling out of their window at 8 p.m. to show solidarity and support, woo, solidarity and support for their um, essential workers and so on. And so, um, you know, we had that. And then, you know, the murder of George, George Floyd and that all came unraveled. So, so, but the upshot to your question is that um, suicide rates actually went down 5% ish, you know, two to two to 5%. They're still working through the data. There's a lot of um, cleaning up of data that comes through and it takes a couple of years actually before we have the definitive data. Um, but we knew by January of 2021 that the rates actually went down um, somewhere between two and 3%, which seems like a small number, but we're talking about thousands of people. Uh, and uh, and that was not shocking to those of us in public health, because again, humans are complicated and often surprise us. Um, but there was also a lot of nuance in that data. And as we get more clarity on that data, that nuance will become clearer to us. So one of the pieces of nuance was that the the rates went down for white men. And if you remember, I, I don't know if I talked about race, but it's largely white men that are dying by suicide. So if the white men go down, the, the entire data point goes down because they represent the majority. Um, so because they went down slightly, the, the rate went down. But when you get past that, um, communities of color went up and um, pretty significantly and also skewing younger than they were before. So young men of color in particular, um, having increased suicide rates. Uh, and then the other point of nuance that I'll bring up is that, well, two, actually, um, accidental death uh, went up. And that includes mm -hmm. all the gray areas for suicide, overdose, car crashes, falls, drownings. Sure. Um, and so part of the thinking is, were those suicides? And our medical examiners and coroners were so busy dealing with COVID that they didn't have time to go through kind of the psychological autopsy work that they would normally go through. So were these deaths just being misclassified or were they in the gray area of, you know, I don't really care if I live or die. So I'm engaging in this risky behavior and let it be what it is, which is kind of like that passive right. suicidal space. Um, so they would be rightly classified as an accident, but, with some suicidal intent behind it. So anyway, it's complicated there. And then the last thing I'll say about COVID is we're still in it. <laughs> the story is not over. And I'll, I'll, some of the things that were, um, you know, impacted by COVID are things that are going to have a long tail. Um, like what happened to the kids, you know? Um, one of the things that was concerning early on when, when kids were out of school was that the calls to child welfare went down. And it wasn't because these kids were no longer being neglected and abused. It was because they were being identified in their schools because it's often the schools that have that identification when kids are being neglected or abused. And so the, they, they were just in their homes with their abusers for months um, or, you know, all of the, the developmental pieces that are going to be impacted by, by not having these usual developmental milestone experiences. So um, yeah. And, and the tragedy of losing people before their time and the, you know, all kinds of stuff all kinds of stuff is going to play out for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. So it still looks like the research is out, but it's interesting that, you know, I, I don't know, for me, it's interesting. I'm not a public health official, right. But it's, for me, it's interesting that the, the suicide rates went down, but at, you know, having you explain. Oh, that, it does. Sense. Just, it does. Um, you know, the great resignation, for example, people left crappy jobs. 
They mm. left a, a bunch of people left crappy jobs yeah. and they're like, you know what? I'm not going to be treated that way anymore. You know, you know, a, a thing like this can also kind of just wake you up to important things in life. Like yeah. life is short. And so, you know, for me, um, mm. while certainly in the early days, very worried about my parents and my in-laws, um, you know, I was very scared for my kids. Mm. You know, as soon as we settled into this new normal, I'm like, I kind of like it. Like before this, I was flying around, like waking up in motel rooms, didn't know where I was, away from my family. And now I get to do this behind my desk and I have dinner with my family every night. Like there were, there were silver linings in the pandemic for many people. Um, and in, even in, within the social unrest, while it was very difficult, people felt heard and seen mm -hmm. and known in a way that they weren't before. So it's it does make sense to be on some level uh, on a lot of levels on why it, it basically stayed the same. It went down slightly, but it didn't skyrocket is the point. It did not skyrocket. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I don't want to keep you much longer. Um, any last, you know, final thoughts, anything you want to share? Well, Josh, thank you so much for making this a big part of, uh, of the conversation with your listeners and, you know, everybody can play a role here. Um, it's not, and please, please, please don't just delegate it to the mental health professionals because where there's not enough of us, there's clearly not enough of us yeah. to actually do the job that we were trained to do. The backlog for mental health services is massive. Yeah. Um, but also we're not the best, as I've been trying to say, in, in doing that public engagement around these conversations. We're good at helping people behind the closed doors. We need everybody involved in these conversations about advocating for resources and reaching out early and supporting one another with dignity and collaboration and respect um, and making mental health and, and suicide prevention just woven into the fabric of this is just what we do around here. It's normal. It's understandable. We all go through it and we're going to be better together. Hmm. Well said. Great. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. I, I, I know you're super busy, so I really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule. Yeah. Thanks so much. Take care, Josh.